um, as we continue this uh, series in Genesis. So let's, let me ask that you stand uh, as we read God's Word together. We're going to cover, uh, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 18, all the way to the end of 18, and all of 19, but I won't make you stand while we read all of that. Um, Genesis 18, verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in, at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who uh, inspired Moses to write these words, as the one who has preserved these words, that it is now your, your function, your job, your responsibility within the Godhead to take this word, your word, and carry it to our hearts that we might know Christ and serve You. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Just to kind of catch you up quickly, um, two, because it's been two weeks uh, since we were in Genesis, 
the first half of the chapter, uh, three men, it appears, show up at Abraham's tent. It turns out that one of them is uh, a, a pre-incarnate form of the second person of the Godhead. One of them is some form of, of Christ in the flesh, um, and the other two are, are angels. And it's after that interaction uh, with Abraham that Abraham walks them out to the hill to see them on their way and send them on down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, We would do well, first of all, to remember. uh, We didn't read of Lot, at least not yet, uh, but he's essentially in the center of this story. We would remember, we would do well, first of all, to remember Lot's context, because Lot is in Sodom. Abraham pleads on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah in part because he knows his nephew Lot is there. That's where my nephew is. What if would you really, God, destroy that city if you found 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous people in that city? He knows that his nephew is there. In Genesis 13, Lot and Abraham had separated. Uh, Abraham had been caring for his nephew all this time, and their their herds grew so large that their herdsmen were fighting and they couldn't get along. And so Abraham finally said, look, Lot, you pick your way, take the direction you want to go, and go that way, and I'll go the other way. You take what you want. And he stood there and looked and down towards Sodom is this lush green valley. He said, I'll take that. Well watered, my, my herds will be well fed, I'll take that. And we're told that he, he chose to go towards Sodom. And we're told at that point, even in Genesis 13, way back five chapters ago, that Sodom is a wicked place, that the sin there is, is very great indeed. We've heard of their wickedness, but we don't know details. We haven't heard uh, exactly uh, what's, what their sin is there. We don't really know uh, what is going on in Sodom. And then we get to verse 4 of chapter 19. The two men left Abraham and the Lord standing there on that hill, and they went on their way and and you get the sense the Lord waits on Abraham, and he's, he's expecting Abraham to speak. He's almost inviting the conversation. Those two angels get to Sodom at the beginning of chapter 19, and in verse 4, we find out just how wicked Sodom is. They were staying at Lot's house. He'd given them a safe place to stay. He'd given them food. He'd given them water so they could bathe and and wash themselves, but word has gotten out that there are two travelers, two visitors to Sodom. And the men of Sodom, we're told, verse 4, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Notice what they wanted. I'd like to think that in our culture, it would still be a little unacceptable. No, no. 
I would like to think that in our culture it would still be unacceptable, not a little unacceptable, perfectly unacceptable to be this vocal about the sin you intend to commit. All of the men from the city, and notice it says young and old, from every corner of the city. There's there's no red light district in Sodom. It's all a red light district. Every corner of the city, and young and old. So you get this vertical and horizontal. It's all encompassing. Notice what they said. They called out, all the men have surrounded the house, and they call out to Lot, where are these men who uh, came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. Um, that's, that's not, let's go have coffee because they're new and I want to welcome the new visitors and get to know them. That's the no that in the biblical sense you kind of have to, <clears throat> before you say it, you know, like, Abraham, like Adam <clears throat> knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. They're, they're, they're screaming in the streets, hey Lot, send those men out so that we can <clears throat> know them. Commit homosexual rape. That's, that's where they are. And, and they're not even trying to be secretive about it. They're, they're making no effort whatsoever to go, um, yeah, we want to just, you know, we want to meet them. Uh, they're not even faking it. They're not even trying to pretend. Notice the the wickedness of this city. The pervasiveness of that wickedness from young to old in every corner of the city. The the brazenness, the the ease with which they just yell out, we want them because we want to satisfy sinful sexual desires. That's why we want these men. That's all we're told here in Genesis 19. But the truth is, their wickedness actually goes beyond, oddly enough, believe it or not, it goes beyond just sodomy in, in well, Sodom. Because turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. I should, I should remind you, I should have reminded you already, you don't want to put your Bibles away. You're going to need them again. We're going to need them several more times because we're going to see where other passages of Scripture, other places, this account shows up throughout the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48, As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Okay, now imagine this. A city is being told, Sodom, not nearly as bad as you are. If only we read Genesis 19, we would think this is a terrible accusation. This is is not the city you want to live in. But it's more than that. Sodom and her daughters have, have not done what you have done. Verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease. So they're arrogant, they're self-serving, self-reliant, self-worship, they're prideful and arrogant, and they have plenty, they have way more food than they need, they have an excess of food. 
And by the way, they, this, this prosperous ease, they, are, they don't want to work six days and rest seven. That's the biblical pattern, six days of labor, one day of rest. They want to, one day of work, have plenty of all the work and all the money they need and take six days of rest. That's, that's what they want. They've, they've easily prospered. Oh, and even with all that blessing, they did not aid the poor and needy. Verse 50, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. Finally, at the end of that list is Genesis 19. It's at the end of that list that we get this this attempt at homosexual rape. So I removed them when I saw it. The list of, of grievances against Sodom are great. Their arrogance, their their overwhelming abundance of food, their lack of care for the poor and needy. They want to prosper, but they want to prosper with no work whatsoever, even though work is biblical. That's the outcry that has come to God. That's the cry that He's heard. We would do well to remember Lot's context of of wickedness, selfishness, gluttony, laziness, arrogance, sexual perversion, uh, lack of care for the poor and needy. We would do well to remember Lot's context. Unfortunately, we don't really have to remember Lot's context. We live in it. You could just about read Ezekiel uh, Ezekiel 16 and, and, and Genesis 19 and think that that was describing our world. We're almost there. That's essentially the context in which you and I live. We would do well to remember Lot's context. We would also do well to remember Lot. Back up with me to Genesis chapter 13. Let me just show you a few words that matter and that drastically affect Lot's life. In Genesis 13, when when Lot and Abraham separate, look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Moses' little uh, uh, comment there. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved, now notice this phrase, moved his tent as far as Sodom. He didn't actually move into Sodom. He's, he's, he's near it. He moved as far as Sodom. He's, he's right outside the city wall. He's still in his tent, but he's near Sodom. But notice what happens in chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 12, these foreign conquering kings come through and they, they plunder Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling, now it says in Sodom. Somewhere between verse uh, verse 12 of chapter 13 and verse 12 of chapter 14, 
he moved inside the city. But notice where we find him at the beginning of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. He's now a landowner. He's the gates of the city. It would be like coming to Athens and finding him either on the courthouse square or at city hall. It's the decision-making, the leadership sort of location of the city. It's where the movers and shakers were. It's where the influential people were. There's a scene in the Santa Claus. I'm 99% certain it's the first Santa Claus. Um, when Scott Calvin has become Santa Claus, you know, he, he's, he's put on the clothes and he became Santa Claus and he's sort of stuck with that and he's still wrestling with Am I, really the Santa, am I really Santa Claus or not? And, and his ex-wife and, and his son, he's got all kinds of issues. There's a scene where he goes to watch his son play soccer and he sits on the end of a park bench at uh, the soccer field. And there's a little girl sitting at the other end of the bench. She glances over at him, slides a little closer. She glances over at him, slides a little closer until ultimately she's sitting in his lap telling him what she wants for Christmas and there's a whole long line of kids waiting their turn. This this little girl was, she was at the other end of the bench but the more and more she looked and said, that's Santa. I know that Santa Claus. The closer and closer and closer she got. You almost have the sense that Lot just kind of kept moving closer and closer to Sodom until he was finally sitting in Sodom's lap. He's sitting at the city gate. He's one of them, so to speak. There's there's this assimilation going on in Lot's life. He's gradually becoming more and more like his context. He enjoys the setting in which he lives. You know, there are times when you read a book, you may watch a football game, you, you, think, you think they've made the catch, and at the last minute there was a fumble, and you, you start to cheer, and just as you start to cheer, you have to kind of drop back down in your chair and drop your shoulders, and you're disappointed again. It's like you're right on the edge of, yes, this is great, and before you can get it out of your mouth, it's not great anymore. Actually, the opposite is true. You see that in Lot's life and the way he reacts to the wickedness of his city. Look at verse 7 of chapter 19. They come and they, they, these, the city folks, um, gather around and they, they, they yell for these two men to be sent out. And Lot steps outside. In verse 7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And you think, yes, finally Lot gets it. He's, he's standing up for what is right. He's willing to defend these people that have come under, the, um, under his protection. He's, he's brought them to his house. And, and they're his to protect. And, and 
he steps outside and says, no, you're not going to do that. Don't act this. He calls, calls it wicked. He recognizes it for what it is. And just as you cheer, there's verse 8. I've got daughters. Your shoulders drop. I thought you had it, Lot. I thought you were there. I thought you were going to stand up. Okay, now it's entirely possible that he knew they weren't interested in his daughters. It's also entirely possible that he knew his daughters are engaged to be married. And in, in the ancient Near East culture, I mean, that was as good as married. So that, so that if anyone violated them, they would be uh, facing the death penalty. So it's entirely possible that he was counting on them saying, no, 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 we don't want girls or we don't want your daughters or no, 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 they're engaged. In fact, their husbands are out here with us. But he offers his daughters horrible response for a father. He protects his travelers, but not his own family. You get ready to cheer and then you collapse again. Or look at verse 3. In verse 3, he press, so he invites these two angels, these two men to come stay with him. And they say, no, 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 we'll stay in, um, in the city. We're fine. We'll stay in the town square. You get the sense Lot knows if you stay in the town square, it ain't going to be pretty. This, this is not, you don't, he presses them, he urges them strongly. It, there's this forcefulness to his uh, response to them. And so, no, no, you come to my house, I'll give, you, I'll give you food, I'll give you a bath, I'll give you a place to sleep, and you can get up early and leave, even maybe before the sun comes up, and before the townspeople get up and realize that you're here. He, he's got that sort of tone in his Voice. He refused to leave them without any protection in the town square. He knows the wickedness of the city around him. He knows where he lives. He knows what will happen if he doesn't take these men into his home. He knows what's going to happen to them. And yet we have verse 16. The men urge Lot to leave. The city's going to be destroyed. You've got to get out of here. But he lingered. I know the wickedness of this city, but I've prospered here. I know that they're wicked, terrible, horrible people, but I've benefited from this culture. I've benefited from this context. I've, I've, it's been prosperous. I've, I've prospered here, and I really don't want to leave it. Or there's even verse 9. When he steps out and says, no, don't do this wicked thing. I'll give you my daughters. They argue back in verse 9, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to, talking about Lot, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. You get the sense that he's been judging them all along. He's been vocally saying to them, y'all are wicked people. And they resent him for his righteousness. They resent him for not participating in the things that they are trying to participate in. You're, you're an outsider. You've come here. Now you're at the city gates, gates and you want to sit as our judge? You want to stand over us and evaluate our 
the world does this, y'all. The world will be offended when you say, no, no, I'm not going to participate in that. Why do they beg so hard to make you? Why do they try so hard to get you to participate in their sin so they can feel better about their sin? They feel judged when you say, I'm not going to do that. that. That's not right or appropriate for me. They feel judged and evaluated when you do that. These people, it seems, that this isn't the first time that Lot has said to them, this is wicked. Don't do this. You're going to judge us? Isn't that what Second Peter said? You read Genesis 19, and then you read 2 Peter 2, and you think, um, I don't see righteous Lot. I'm not sure I see Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter knows things we don't know from Genesis 19. We have to trust. What we have to do, because of, of our understanding of, of the Bible, it being truly God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, we have to say, okay, Peter knows something I don't, rather than, well, Peter's just wrong. It would be tempting to say, well, Peter's clearly wrong because that's not what it says in chapter 19. Or, it makes more sense for us to say, Peter knows things we don't know. And we read in 2 Peter where Lot was uncomfortable, at least, with their wickedness. But not so uncomfortable that he would leave. He's a believer. but a believer struggling with the benefits of his culture even to himself. There's this scene in a Seinfeld episode. Jerry's girlfriend at the time is a painter. She's an artist. She's painting Kramer. And, and her dad, her parents, are looking at this painting of, of Kramer. And... Um, the mom seems a little sympathetic. The dad uh, finally says, he's a loathsome, offensive brute, yet I can't look away. Lot seems to have that. This is a terrible, horrible, wicked society. I just can't peel myself out of it because it's benefiting me. He can see the wickedness. He can call it what it is. He can be offended by it, but he just can't peel himself away. We would do well to remember Lot's context and to remember Lot. We would also do well to remember Lot's wife. She only shows up a couple of times in this passage. The reason I've chosen this sort of outline, remember Lot's context, remember Lot, remember, is because Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife. She really only shows up in verses 15 and, and 17. They, they leave. They finally escape. They've been warned. Uh, they flee the city. And then in verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him, Lot and the girls have entered the city, Zoar. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. Now, I assume that you have in your mind a quick glance over the shoulder, curiosity, while she's running into Zoar. That was the image in my head. I hope that was the image in your head. I kind of hope that... But if you look at the language, 
verses 23 and 24. The sun comes up when Lot came to Zoar. Then fire and brimstone rain on Sodom and Gomorrah. I've always wanted to preach a fire and brimstone sermon. Here it is. This is as fire and brimstone as you're going to get from me. They were already at this safe city. You, you get the sense that, that Lot's wife actually stood at the gate and stopped and gazed. She was staring back at Sodom. There was a, a longing, a hunger, a, a desire to be back there. Let me, let me show you uh, how Jesus handles this in Luke 17. Turn to Luke 17. Jesus uses Lot's, Mrs. Lot as, a, as an illustration for us in reference to the coming judgment, the last days when Christ returns and the, the, the judgment of the ungodly. In Luke 17, uh, verse 31, On that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. The, the picture there is of those who, when that day of judgment finally comes, when Christ returns, there are those who will kind of glance at their house like, can, can I run in and grab a few things? Can, can I run it? I was joking with uh, some guys on Friday. Um, a couple of guys got into a conversation about their cars. They have the same kind of car. And talking about how they like it or whatever. And then one of them joked. He's, he's a, a ruling elder at a PCA church. He was making a joke. It was very obviously a joke. So Jesus says, I'm, in my house there are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Does my mansion have a garage? Can I bring my, guitar, my car with me? That seems to be what Lot's wife is longing for. She wished she could be back there. She longed for her life there. This is a warning for us, right? I mean, that's exactly what Jesus... Jesus uses Mrs. Lot as a warning that we would not so love the things of this world that when Christ returns, we, we linger. We hesitate. We look back. We think to ourselves, um, there's a picture. I, I'll be, Jesus, hang on, I'm coming. Let me run, go. That was Mrs. Lot's downfall. Remember Lot's context, remember Lot, remember Lot's wife, but also remember Abraham. The passage we read. Genesis 18, 16 to the end of the chapter, we're told there why God brought Abraham into the loop. Why He told Abraham what He was about to do. And notice we're given two reasons in verses 17 through 19 as to why, uh, why God was about to destroy Abraham and Sodom and why He went ahead and told Abraham in advance. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. There are two reasons he were given as to why he brings Abraham into the loop. First is that Abraham's going to be a great nation and he's going to be a blessing to the nations. There's coming a time when Abraham will grow, when the seed of Abraham, the descendants, the offspring of Abraham will grow and be this great nation and through them the nations will be blessed. The second reason is that Abraham has been chosen. By the way, that's the word know there again. Abraham has been known by God, has been chosen by God to teach his children and his children's children and their children after them the way of the Lord. In other words, Abraham is told what's about to happen because he's God's friend. That's what James calls him. James calls him a friend of God. You see, servants don't always know what their master is about to do. Friends do. He's he's a friend of God. John Calvin said, God doesn't make known His will to us that the knowledge of it may perish With us. God doesn't make known His will to you so that that knowledge can die with you. Abraham's given the responsibility of being a blessing to the nations around him and teaching and training his children to know and to love and to serve God. Notice what Abraham does in response. He becomes a blessing to the nations. Immediately, he begins to be a blessing for the nations. As soon as he hears about the destruction of Sodom, yes, his nephew is there, but as soon as he begins to hear about the destruction of Sodom, he pleads with God And he pleads God's character back to him. The basis, the foundation of his prayer is, Surely, God, you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Surely, you are just and righteous. Surely, what you will do, that you will do what is just. He perhaps remembers Noah. Noah who found favor in the sight of God. Noah, who was a righteous man, we're told in Genesis 6. Noah and his family were saved, were delivered through the flood, though the whole world was destroyed. You could argue there's no one righteous, not even one, that that there's no such thing as, as a righteous person in Sodom. He knows that there aren't any You could make that argument back to him. And yet, yet Abraham seems to recall, in the past, you've delivered the righteous, 
when you destroyed the earth, when you judged wickedness. Abraham takes this information and he prays. He intercedes for the wicked on behalf of the wicked. He intercedes for this city, Sodom and Gomorrah, that deserves destruction. When you look at the world around you, it's one thing to complain about it and be frustrated by it in a Fox News sort of way. It's another thing to be driven to your knees that you would beg and plead for mercy, for God's patience, for God's long-suffering, for God's willingness to save the lost and to gather to Himself a people. Abraham's driven to his knees. Abraham boldly and yet humbly begs that God would spare the righteous, would even spare the wicked on behalf of the righteous, that you won't destroy that city if there are even ten righteous people there. They couldn't find ten. In fact, they could only find one. Four are brought out of the city. One is deemed righteous. And why? Why were those four brought out? There's the outline again. Remember Lot's context. Remember Lot. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus tells us that. Remember Abraham. Look with me at the end of chapter 19 and verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. He didn't remember Lot. It wasn't Lot that came to God's mind that delivered Lot. It was Abraham. It was on account of Abraham. It was on account of, of his love for God's, for his chosen people, uh, the, the chosen nation. It was out of love for pre preserving the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, and out of response to the pleading of righteous Abraham that Lot and his family were delivered. God remembered Abraham. And He delivered Lot on account of him. After they've been destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, the smoke is rising up and Abraham gets up the next morning and he walks right back out to the hill. The last time we saw him, he was standing on that hill talking with God. Now he's standing on that hill looking down over the city, watching the smoke rise, wondering, probably, I wonder what happened to Lot. Looking down and thinking, well, obviously God didn't find ten righteous men. Is one enough? To preserve the city? Would one have been destroyed with the wicked? He has to be wondering what came of Lot. Lot had been spared. Lot and his family had been delivered. Why? Because God remembered Abraham. Abraham became a blessing to the nations that very day. Let me make Three, I think just three applications from this passage. First, the church should be a blessing to the nations. 
The church should be a blessing to the culture, the context in which we have been planted. Athens should be a different place because we are here. The church should be a blessing to its context. In part, because we plead for God to have mercy on the wicked. Do you shake your fist at your culture? Do you moan and complain and grumble about the the world in which we live? Do you get frustrated by it and angry? Only to then go on about your way? Or do you get angry and fall to your knees and beg that God would have mercy? That he would spare his people and that he would gather his people to himself. Are you pleading with God on behalf of the wicked? A second application. Have you ever noticed, you read through the Bible, uh, you, you notice how soon we forget, how quickly from one generation to the next, in the promised land, the very first generation raised in the promised land didn't know God or His saving work in Israel's history. Parents, we're given that responsibility. We we read those passages and it kind of goes in one ear and out the other and we go, look at that, look how quickly people forgot. And we don't turn around and teach and train our children to know to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. We have been commanded, we've been given the responsibility to teach and to train our children to know God, to know His ways, to know and do righteousness and justice. By the way, we have a bad example of this. We, we didn't read it, we, we didn't really look at it, but we have a, a bad example of this at the very end of chapter 19 when Lot's daughters become pregnant through... Drunken incest. And their descendants are nations that will forever be in conflict with Israel. Apparently, Lot was able to get his daughters out of Sodom, but wasn't able to get Sodom out of his daughters. Made no effort, no attempt, it seems, to get Sodom out of his daughters. Parents, are you teaching and training your children to know, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. I'm stealing that straight out of verse 18 or 19 in chapter 18. One last application. One more remember, in fact. Remember Lot's context. Remember Lot. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Abraham. Finally, remember Yahweh. Remember God. That's really the point of this table, isn't it? This table is set so that we will remember. So that we will remember that God does indeed judge wickedness. He does indeed judge sin. There is truly coming judgment. The wicked will be punished. And our only hope of delivery from that judgment at that day is faith and trust in Christ. Remember, remember God. 
Remember Yahweh. Remember the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, who keeps His promises to deliver us because Christ Himself has interceded for us. Christ prays for us. And God remembers Christ. The Father remembers the Son so that He might forget your sin. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, You have been faithful to save. You have been merciful and gracious to gather rebellious, wicked people to Yourself. Father, we pray that You would continue to be gracious. That You would continue to be merciful. That You would continue to pour out Your blessings on us, on our, on our culture, on our city, and we pray that Athens would be a better place, a different place, an, an affected place, because the whole gospel is being proclaimed through the whole city. Father, would you use us? And God, we pray that you would even use our children to preserve our culture a little longer. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.